Go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> Good morning. So glad you're here. God's here doing good stuff. If it's your first time, I'd like to say welcome as well. But just so you know kind of what's going on, what's happening, the ushers are going to come down. They're going to pass welcome books across the rows. And, um, and we ask everybody, if they would, to just go ahead and fill those out. It doesn't matter if it's your first week, if it's your 10th week, if you've been coming for years and years. Um, we would love to be able to stay in touch with you. If you've got any changes in your information, email, phone number, any of that stuff, be sure and fill that out. And... Um, and and uh, thank you. We appreciate you doing that. Uh, after they're done, there's a chance for you to give an offering. The buckets are going to go by, and the offering is an interesting deal. It's not like you can pay your ticket to come to church kind of thing. It really is an expression of worship back to God, that we recognize that God is the one who gives us everything. God is the one who gives us everything. And we have a chance to just simply give back to him and to say, God, we trust you. We thank you. Um, we we want to live uh, as you provide for us, and so it's a chance to give. A lot of people give electronically as well as uh, putting um, money or checks or whatever in the buckets. Um, uh, a lot of people have checks sent to the church. If you give electronically, uh, I haven't said this for a while, if you're able to just kind of go through your bank account and, and have a check sent to the church rather than doing it through your credit card, um, that saves us the 2 or 3% charge that the banks charge, and it just increases your offering by uh, a little bit beyond uh, what it is that you've given, and that's cool. Uh, any way you want to do it is fine. God's, God owns it all. It's all his, and, uh, and we trust him for that all the time. Um, in the last several weeks, a number of people have, have talked to me and said, hey, how's your granddaughter doing? If, uh, if you've been around North Point for a while... Oh, is that great or what? Um, if you've been around North Point last October, about almost six months ago, she turned six months uh, this week, uh, our granddaughter Sylvie was born. She was born with an omphalocele with her liver outside of her body. And lots and lots of you all prayed for her and prayed for Leah and Charlie, prayed for us. And uh, people have been asking, I thought, uh, what better time to show a picture of Sylvie, baby Sylvie, than today. So uh, she turned six months this week, and uh, that's cool. Thanks so much for praying. We hope, don't know if it's going to happen or not, because they just moved into a new house, but we hope that maybe towards the end of the summer that they'll be up here and you can actually see her and meet them, which would just be a really, really cool thing. Uh, also wanted to let you know that uh, the staff, the pastoral staff, Chris and... Um, Jake and Courtney and Amy and myself and Deb, my wife Deb, are all heading to Florida tonight uh, to Orlando for the Exponential Conference. We're going to be at a conference from uh, Monday through Thursday, and uh, we're, we're just really excited about going away together. We're excited about what God will speak to us during this week, and we appreciate your prayers. So anytime that you think about uh, the staff this week and pray that God would... Uh, uh, pray that God would talk to us, that we would hear and be receptive, and that uh, he would give just great direction for us. I'm really, really excited about this series that starts today. We've been talking about it for a while. The series is called More, and, um, and uh, I'm, today's message is really to just kind of uh, lay out the, the plan, the message for the next eight weeks. Um, in the summer of 2013, I was experiencing what many of you have experienced as well, a deep sense of discontent in my job, a sense that I was 
woefully out of place. From an outside perspective, my work life really looked pretty well. I was, uh, my, my role was such that I was doing a management of some church planning stuff. We, I, I served as the, the outside manager for, for a multiracial church that had been planted in a city close by. We had just started the plans to plant another city at the university where we were. Um, we had just planted a church in uh, South America. Um, I was involved real closely with our missionary who, who worked with a people group in um, the Durango province, the southern part of the Durango province in Mexico, a, a people tribe with no written language, no concept really of who Jesus was. And, and all of that was good. The church, we had been there about four or five years. The church had grown about 80% during the time that we had been there. So on the external, everything looked really, really good. But I had this discontent that was related to what I was doing. Um, it was the result of the, the elders kind of changed roles. We did a reorganization, and my new role on staff wasn't a bad role. It wasn't responsibilities that I couldn't do well. It just didn't feel like it fit me very well. Um, it wasn't really where my heart was. Um, to be real honest, I hated that role. I, I didn't enjoy going to work. Even though God was working and we were moving the ball down the field spiritually as a church, I felt like one of the Robertson brothers from Duck Dynasty getting ready to go to the opera, you know? There, 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 picture that. There. there was just this sense that it wasn't right. I was miserable. I, I remember sitting with one of the elders at the church and telling him, I don't know that I can keep doing this. Have you ever been there? Have you ever experienced that kind of discontent? Um, maybe, maybe, maybe you weren't miserable. Maybe it was just this inescapable sense that you weren't in the right place, that you were living somebody else's life, that every day was a grind that you were just having to blast through. You'd get up in the morning, you'd go to work, you'd maybe make some progress at work, you'd come home just more tired than you ought to be, go to bed and wake up and do it all over again. I was a minister, a pastor, and I was sensing that. I remember talking to that elder in my car and telling him about my discontent. I wasn't angry. It wasn't like I was ready to have a nervous breakdown or anything. I was just terribly out of place, and I felt like I needed to find a new place to serve. Uh, within a few days, that particular elder called me back and said, you know, talk to the guys. Here's what we want to do. We want to provide an opportunity for you to go on a sabbatical, to just take some time and, and go away for six or eight weeks and think and talk and pray because we don't want you to leave. We sense that God is using you here. We don't want you to go. As I began to plan that sabbatical, I called a good friend that I had served on staff with for seven years, a guy named Todd Wilson. <clears throat> I knew that he was doing life plans uh, each year for Christian leaders, three-day intensive retreats um, designed to help leaders who were already successful as pastors and leaders fine-tune their calling. These guys weren't, weren't young guys. It's not like they were in their 20s. These were guys in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, even into their 70s, who had experienced tremendous success, but they felt restless. They felt like something wasn't quite right, like a cylinder was missing in their engine. 
The work that Todd did with these guys, with, with me, was all about discovering who, had got, who God had created us to be, what God had created us to do, where God had positioned us to serve most effectively. Everybody that Todd did this work with walked away with a life plan, uh, something far more than just a sense of your spiritual gifts, far more than a personality profile, far more than a vague sense that we were just supposed to live as children of God no matter where God took us. I've told you before that for 17 years I was a worship pastor. Much of that time I was an associate pastor as well. For four years I was the chairman of the music department at a Christian college helping train um, worship pastors, college students who were going to be worship pastors in churches around the country. For another 12 years, I had served as a senior level leader in churches, helping flesh out and implement the direction and vision of the churches where I served. Never in all that time had I seriously entertained the idea of serving as a lead pastor, a senior minister, a preacher. I was certain that I knew where God wanted to use me, that I knew and understood what kind of role my gifting was best suited for. But God used that restless discontent, what C.S. Lewis calls an unfulfilled eternal longing, to try and rediscover my personal calling, my clear sense of why God put me here on earth. Todd was writing the book more at the time, and through the process that he describes in the book, he took me... that, that, that process that he took me through made me open for the first time in my life to being used by God to being a senior pastor, a, a lead pastor. I don't know that I would have ever have been open to a second conversation with North Point if it weren't for the things that we're going to discover over the next eight weeks. This, is, this study is very personal for me and for us as a church. What's the goal of this series that we start today? It's to help you find the calling that God has on your life. To find, to discover the calling that God has on your life. Tony Campolo, I remember hearing, hearing him speak a number of years ago. He told about a friend of his named Charlie. Charlie was a college professor, a college English professor. If you're an educator, um, a college professor is kind of like the job everybody aspires to. You know, you get to that spot and you really arrive. Well, um, Charlie quit his job as, a, as an English professor at a college in order to become a mailman. Now, uh, I'm not casting any aspersions on the Postal Service, okay? Not, nothing bad there at all. But that's not typically the career path that most people go on. College professor, mailman, make that transition. And um, so Campolo talked to him. The guy kind of talked through why he had made this, this choice. And Campolo said to him, look, Charlie, if you're going to be a mailman, be the best mailman you can be. You know, be the best mailman God designs you to be. And Charlie said, Tony, I'm a lousy mailman. I can't get to sleep at night. And Campolo said to him, what do you mean? And, and Charlie said, well, here's the deal. Till I took my mail route, None of those people had anyone to talk to. I'm the last guy who gets back to the post office. I can't sleep at night because do you know what it's like to have 15 cups of coffee in one day? Um, <laughs> Campolo, Campolo walked away from that conversation with a clear sense that Charlie captured the excitement of what it meant to know and understand his personal calling and to operate right in the center 
of that sweet spot. This series is great if you're, a, if you're a junior high or a high school kid. This series will help you discover things that are far more important than your SAT score, far more important than your aptitude stuff. This series is designed for, for moms who are young, who have young kids at home, who feel like every day they wake up and all they do is clean up juice and do laundry and, and uh, referee fights between their kids, and that there has to be something more in their life than that. It's, it's, the series is designed for moms who work and who feel that pull because they love their job, maybe, and they think maybe they should be with their kids, or they miss being with their kids, and they don't like their job, but they don't feel like there's any way out, and they're thinking there's got to be something more. This series is designed for people who are IT professionals who think, you know what, life has got to be about more than writing code, and having a secure network. The series is designed specifically for people who work at GM or, or BWNL and think, you know what? There's got to be more to life. There's got to be more to life than putting parts in cars. There's got to be more to life than just making sure that people have electricity and water. This series is designed for people who are type A personalities, who believe if I can just get the next promotion, if I can just land the next account, if I can just get my own business, if I can just make partner, my life will be fulfilled. This series is perfect for people who are retired and who feel like, you know what, I'm coasting towards the end of my life. I'm still a long way away from the nursing home but I feel like I'm just existing. This series is perfect for us as a church because we've said our vision is that we would impact 50,000 people in the next five years with the grace of Jesus. Can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people where they've said, oh, wow, that's That's a great, great vision. 50,000 people in the next five years with the grace of Jesus. That's incredible. How are you going to do that? What's the church going to do to reach that 50,000 number. Here's the thing. There's not anything that we can do as a church to effectively impact those kind of numbers with the grace of Jesus unless we be the church, unless we personally recognize that there's someone in my life that I need to impact with the grace of Jesus, whether that person's at the gas station or at work or at home or whatever. It's perfect for us because it's all about recognizing and discovering the calling that God has given us. You may be thinking, you know what? I hear you. I'm not sure that it really matters all that much to me. I like my job. I like my life. It's kind of all good. If that's the case, why does this matter? I would ask you, when you go to bed at night and you lay in bed and the lights are off, and all the noise is gone, if you lie awake and think, it seems like there has to be something more than I'm experiencing right now, this series is for you. Uh, that sense of more comes from operating within our sweet spot. Nature is filled with sweet spot, and I don't mean an ice cream store kind of sweet spot, right? Okay? That nature has all kinds of examples of sweet spots. Um, Everybody ready for summer, thinking about the boat thing? When I think about getting out on the water, a speedboat, it's really cool. You know, when you've got the boat on the water and you got it opened up, you're, you're going full blast, what do you do as a pile of the boat? You begin to fiddle with the trim, right? 
Because if you can get the trim to just the right place, the angle of the propeller, just the right place, all of a sudden that boat goes and takes off and goes four or five miles an hour faster because you're in the sweet spot of the boat and the, and the propeller and the angle. Um, lots of people love baseball, right? You know, in baseball, there is a sweet spot on a bat. Ready? Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, just kidding. <laughs> if, if, you hit, if you hit a ball with a bat and you hit it up here, even though you're in the center of the bat, you're not going to have any power because when you're extended, there's nothing out there to be able to, to really connect with, with the ball. If you hit it in here, you're not going to have nearly the power because that's not where the sweet spot is. The sweet spot on the bat's someplace right in there in the center, not on the outside edge, not on the bottom edge, right in the center. And when you hit a ball with the sweet spot of a bat, it takes off. It just takes off and goes incredibly. You all know, if I'm talking sports and sweet spots, I couldn't talk about anything except racquetball, right? Um, in a racquetball racket, in a racquetball racket, there's a sweet spot. Any place on this racket, you can hit the ball. You can hit it with a rim. You can do all kinds of stuff. But the place where you have the, the, the best combination of control and power is right in there. If you hit it up here, you've got more power but less control. Actually, up there, you've got more control but less power. If you hit it down here, you've got more power but less control. But if you hit it right in the center of that, you can control where, this, where the ball's going and you can smack it. It's the sweet spot of the racket. In, um, in, vocal music, in vocal music, there's a sweet spot that happens when people sing that's incredible because what it does is in that sweet spot, it creates something unbelievable, something that if your ears are tuned to it, you, you wouldn't ever recognize. When people sing in perfect harmony, um, the, there's, it, cre- it can create... When everything is right, it can create what's called an overtone. So somebody's singing a C, somebody's singing a, a G, and the note that you hear, that you physically hear with your ear with the sound waves, is an E above that. It's an overtone. It comes from the sweet spot of those voices come together. We all understand that there are sweet spots everywhere in our lives. A sweet spot exists when design, purpose, and location work together in concert. When design, purpose, and location work together, design, what it's designed to be, purpose, what it's designed to do, location, where it's designed to go when they work together in, con- in concert. Restless content is the result of being outside of our sweet spot. When you're outside of your sweet spot, you can still function it's just not nearly as fun, and it's a lot harder work. When I'm playing racquetball, if I, hit the ball, if I hit the ball out here on the edge, I can still hit it, and it may make it to the wall. But the guy that I'm playing is going to kill the next shot because that shot hasn't done what it was designed to do. Restless discontent is the sign that you're outside of your sweet spot. Todd, when he went to work for Bob Buford, the author of Halftime, Moving from Success to Significance, um, this is right after we had moved from Virginia. I remember talking to him, and, and Todd went to work for Buford one day a week, so, so 20% of his time, he'd fly to Dallas and work for Buford. And, and Buford said to Todd, he said, Todd, when you're working for me, I want you to work 100% of the time that you're working for me in your sweet spot. 
I don't want you to do anything that's outside of your sweet spot. And I remember Todd saying, you know, when he said that to me, I thought, this is incredible. This is incredible. I get to work for this guy, this high-powered guy, 100% in my sweet spot. And he said, almost as soon as those thoughts were formed in his head, the thoughts came right alongside it that said, why am I so excited about only being able to work 20% in my sweet spot? 80% of the time, I'm willing to do whatever I have to do to just get 20%. Why can't I work 75% in my sweet spot or 100% in my sweet spot? That's about calling. Yeah, now, you may be saying, Rick, you've been talking a long time, and you haven't even opened Scripture yet. What's the deal with this? It's, it's, here, here's, the, here's the thing. This concept that we're talking about is absolutely a biblical principle that we're going to see where, see it fleshed out in just a second. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus is talking, and he says, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I come, I come that you might have life and have it abundantly, that you might have it to the full, that you might have it overflowing. That's John 10. That's the life living in the center of your sweet spot, in the center of the calling that God has placed on your life. That's that life to the full. Um, There's a whole lot of questions I want you to think about this week. This is one of them. As you process today's message, ask yourself the question, are you content not living in the center of God's calling for your life? Are you content to live your life outside of the sweet spot that God designed for you? One of my favorite scriptures is from Ephesians chapter 2. It's a a familiar passage of scripture that says, um, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Our salvation, our relationship with God is not because of anything we've done. It's all because of the grace of Jesus. There's not anything that we can be proud of in that. It's all God doing his work to rescue us, to save us. But the next verse says this, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in them. These issues that we're talking about, in calling, we find right out of Ephesians 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship. What has God created us to be? His workmanship. Who has God created us to be? His workmanship. We're, um, the, the Amplified Version says we're, we're a, a masterpiece of art. We are God's workmanship. That's who God has created us to be. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. God has made us with things to do. To not just sit on the sidelines, but he has created us specifically to do certain things that we should walk in them. God has created a place, the go issue. Be, do, go. Be, do, go. God has created the, the location where we can best serve him. Three universal questions that we all wrestle with. It's the questions that, that come to us late at night. What am I created to be? What am I cre- who am I created to be? What am I created to do? Where am I created to go? Who am I created to be? What am I created to do? Where am I created to go? The answer to those questions define our calling. In the Garden of Eden, it was, 
it was clear, it was plain, right? God has a relationship with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that, that the be-do-go is absolutely clear. Who, who are Adam and Eve supposed to be? They're supposed to be God's creation in relationship with him. So they walk through the garden. They talk back and forth with God. They have this perfect harmonic relationship in the garden. The bee is there. What are they supposed to do? God says, you know what? Subdue the earth, take care of the animals, be fruitful, multiply. God's got stuff for them to do in the garden. It was clear. It was easy for them to follow through on. Where were they supposed to go? God said, you can, you can go anywhere you want inside the garden, except that one tree. Don't go there. Be, do, go. Absolutely clean and, uh, clean and clear. Uh, clear, clear and plain for Adam and Eve in the garden. Absolutely. But when sin entered, all of a sudden it got foggy. All of a sudden the be, do, go got, got messy and lost in the process. Uh, uh, what happens after they sin? Adam and Eve hide in the garden. That relationship that they're supposed to have with God, the bee issue, is messed up. Uh, wh- what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to take care of things, but, but because God relocates them outside of the garden as a result of the sin, all of a sudden, what are they supposed to do? Are we supposed to take care of the peach trees? Are we supposed to plant corn? Are we supposed to, are we supposed to dig out peanuts? All of that became really muddy for them. Where are they supposed to go? When they sinned, do you understand that their world changed dramatically and, and outside of the garden, outside of the garden was a completely different world than it was inside the garden. They, they didn't know where to go. They didn't know what it was like. You go another generation forward and you think about Cain. Cain kills his brother, Abel, right? Who was, he, who was Cain supposed to be? He was supposed to be a brother. How'd that work? For him, what was Cain supposed to do? He was supposed to give a sacrifice to God. How'd that work when Cain was unclear about what he was supposed to do? And after Cain killed Abel, where's he supposed to go? Cain says to God, God, you've got to put a mark on my head because people are going to want to kill me. I'm just going to be a wanderer. My be do go is lost completely. In one generation, things had changed dramatically from what God designed in the garden to reality. Jeremiah 1, I don't have this on screen, but if you've got your Bibles or if you want to take one out of the pew and go to Jeremiah 1, you see the be-do-go in Jeremiah's life really clearly as well. Uh, Jeremiah 1 starts the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, and then goes on to do a whole lot more descriptors. Verse 4 says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to a prophet to the nations. The B question for Jeremiah was clear. He he was to be a prophet for God. He was to be in relationship with God. Even before he was born, God recognized that, told him that. If you go down to verse 10, it says, Uh, God says to Jeremiah, see, I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. God says to Jeremiah, I've got stuff for you to do. You're to build, plant, tear down, overthrow, uh, uh, break down stuff. Clear picture of what he was supposed to do. Uh, Verse 6, Jeremiah says to God, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. But God said to me, don't say I'm only a youth. For to all 
to whom I send you, you shall go. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. Don't be afraid of them. God had a clear place that Jeremiah was to go. That concept of be, do, go, where his workmanship created for good works, which God has prepared beforehand uh, that, that he instructs us to go to. Um, in order for us to, to grasp that calling, to live out that calling, we need to understand that there are two aspects of calling. There's a common calling for all of us, for everybody who's here today, a common calling, and then there's a unique calling for each of us as well. Sometimes common calling is called a primary calling or a general calling. Sometimes unique calling is called a secondary calling or a specific calling. That common calling is the calling that God has for every person that he's created. The unique calling is the call that God has that's specific for you as an individual. It's specific because of the design that God has, has woven into your life, the story of your life. It's who God created you to be. Uh, Bob Buford says that when we appear before God, God's going to ask us two questions. There's only going to be two questions. The first question is this. What did you do with Jesus? That's the common calling question. What did you do with Jesus? Did you believe in him? Did you hear about him? Did you allow him to have lordship over every area of your life? What did you do with Jesus? Second question is this. What did you do with the stuff that Jesus gave you? What did you do with the skills that he provided you with? What, what did you do with the way that he designed you and equipped you? What did you do with that? That's the unique calling piece. The common calling we're going to talk about in the next three weeks, and let me just give you a little bit of an overview to, to get there. The common calling questions... Who did, God, uh, who did God create me to be? What's my identity? When we're, when we're thinking big picture, common for all of us, it's to be a disciple, a disciple of Jesus. Um, what's, what's, our, what's our mission? What's, what's God call us to do? It's to make disciples. We're to be a disciple who makes disciples. And what's, what's our mission field? Where are we designed to go? What's God, where does God want us to go? The answer to that question is wherever you are. What's our common calling? It's to be a disciple who makes disciples wherever you are. That's the overview of the next three weeks. We're going to talk about that in depth over the next three weeks. And then the following three weeks, we're going to talk about the unique calling that we have. What's my purpose? Who am I? What's the story that God's been writing in my life specifically? What design has God put on me? What am I supposed to do? How did, God, how did God wire me uniquely? What gifts has he given me? What experiences have I had? What do I find fulfillment in doing? Who did God create me to be? What did God create me to do? And the position question, where am I supposed to go? In what circumstances, in what context has God wired you to flourish? In what context has God designed you to live life to the full? Cotton Mather was, a, was a, um, a theologian, a preacher in the 17th century. He talked about this idea of common calling and unique calling, and he used a boat kind of imagery for that. Um, what Mather said was, uh, we live life with this calling from God, and if we don't ever grasp either our common or our unique calling, it's like we're sitting in a boat, and the water takes us where? Wherever it wants to. Hear me, that's the picture of many lives today. No sense of who they are, no sense of what their purpose is. 
They're in the boat, just going wherever the water takes them. What Mather said that I think is really interesting, he said, he said your, common calling is like, or your common calling is like one oar, one paddle that goes in the water. When you have a sense of who you are in Jesus, um, that you're a disciple who makes disciples wherever, wherever, they are, wherever you are, that it's like you put one oar in the water and you're paddling this way. What happens when you're in the boat paddling on one side? You spin in circles, Right? So for, for lots of people, they get that God designed them, that God created them. But they have the sense that there needs to be something more than just living in that world. Mather said, you know, the, the other or is that unique calling who God designed you to be. Uh, and, and for a lot of people, even people who don't have any idea who Jesus is, they've got a good sense. Man, I know who I am. I know what I was created to do. I know where I'm supposed to be. And they're paddling away on the other side of the boat. And where are they going? In circles. They're going nowhere fast. But when, you, but when you pair up, when you bring together your common calling and your unique calling, and you're able to paddle on both sides of the boat, all of a sudden you're making progress. And your life takes you where God designed you to be, where God designed you to go, doing what God designed you to do. Questions to wrestle with this week, and these are hard questions. Are you willing to listen? Are you willing to listen when God says what you don't want to hear? Because grasp this, understand this. If we're talking about calling, and we have that restless discontent, that restless discontent is not going to be resolved by just thinking some new thoughts. Are you willing to listen when God says what you don't want to hear? Are you willing to pray and ask God what, ask God what he has to say to you? Man, that's, that's my deepest desire for the next eight weeks, that we would be a, a, a church filled with people who are praying, God, what do you have for me in this? Third thing, are you willing to surrender the scorecard? We have a very specific scorecard in our culture. What, how do you define success in life? It's usually by the kind of house you live in, the kind of car that you drive, the amount of stuff that you have, your position at work. That scorecard is the scorecard that drives most of our culture. The question in this series is, are you willing to surrender that scorecard? Charlie, the English professor turned mailman, got that. I want a different scorecard. I want to operate in the calling that God has given me. Please understand, this series is not about having droves of people leave their jobs in the marketplace and become missionaries or, uh, or, or vocational ministry staff someplace, though that might be the case for some people. Don't miss me in that. God may call some of you through this series to say, you know what, I am wasting my time doing what I'm doing. I need to be doing kingdom stuff full time. That may be the case, but that's not the purpose of the series. It is about helping you discover who you are as God created you to be and God's unique calling on your life, finding ways to follow that in this season of life. This is not a one series, a one and done kind of thing that, oh boy, if we get this right in the next eight weeks, I'm good for the next 50 years. Not that at all, because the seasons in our lives change. 
It's a continual process of saying, God, what's the story that you're writing in my life? What are you calling me to do? Who are you calling me to be? Where are you calling me to go right now? If you're going to make progress, both oars in the water this week, or in the series, you've got to do the work. You can't just come to church and listen to the messages. If you do, at the end of June, the only thing that will be different is that you will be more frustrated than you are right now because you'll have a clear sense that my relationship with God is not right. I haven't done anything on that. And man, I'm not operating in my sweet spot. Boy, I hear that in spades. You will be more frustrated than you are right now. Here's the challenge for us as we start this series. If you haven't yet, get the book and read it. Get the book more. Um, Today's message really kind of takes you through the first eight chapters of the book. It's really kind of an overview, particularly, particularly if you're new in your walk with God, trying to figure out who you are. Man, dive into those first eight chapters because Todd does a great job at just helping us understand how that fits into the whole um, call, uh, question of calling. Read, read the chapter. Uh, from next week on, we'll just, just do one chapter at a time as we look at the be, do, go of our common calling and then the be, do, go of our, uh, of our unique calling. Get the book and read it. They're out in the hub after this service. You can do that. Second thing, pray, 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 and ask God to speak to you. Don't just go through the motions. Ask God to show you as you work through this stuff. Third thing, be a part of a more group. Um, if if uh, you're in a life group, uh, hopefully you're, you're going through the more stuff in your life group. Um, if you're in a life group and you're not, man, join up with a more group because you can, you can do this all on your own. You can go through the process on your own, but it won't be nearly as effective as if you process it together with some other people who are working through the exact same questions. In any job, in any job, there are difficult seasons. There are times when you struggle, times when you're disappointed, times when things happen that aren't fair or they're not what you planned. That's true in ministry, too. Over the last 35 years, Deb and I have been incredibly blessed, and God has been incredibly good to us, but we have been through some very difficult times, some very difficult times. Early on, I experienced what it was like when a lead pastor was fired, preaching on one Sunday and his desk cleared out by the next Sunday. I've been on staff when there's been moral failure of a staff member that tore apart the church. I've served with pastors and church leaders plagued by insecurity and arrogance. In spite of the fact, in spite of that fact, I've had the incredible privilege of serving God vocationally, but it hasn't always been easy. Many of you remember a couple of years ago when we first came to North Point, to North Point we, invited, we invited people to come have dessert at our house in groups of 10 or 12. Uh, we did that so that we could get to know people, so that um, we could get to know North Point, and so that we could have a sense of the story that God has been writing here over the last generation. Um, during those desserts, we had about 200 different people in our home having dessert, which was incredibly good, but not uh, good on my stomach. Um, <laughs> We loved doing that, and we hope to be able to do that again this fall for people that haven't had a chance to do that, that we've not had a chance to really meet. I remember one night in particular, that first fall, after everybody had left, 
The dishes were put away. The house was quiet. And Deb said to me, can you believe we're here? It's as if everything that we've experienced in the past, the training, all the different roles that you've had, the ways that we've seen God work in the past, all the difficult things that we've been through, the hard times, it's all been in preparation for us to come to North Point. That's because my story is not my story. It's God's story being lived out in me. Do you understand that? That's true for all of us. Our story is not our own story. It's the story of God working in our lives. The next eight weeks are about discovering or rediscovering God's calling in your life. Whether your relationship with him right now is casual and brand new or whether it's deep and rich and has lasted years and years. Don't miss a week. Let's pray. God, I, I come to you right now, and Lord, my, my heart's prayer is that these next eight weeks would be a landmark time for us as a church. God, that, that we would come out of this series with a clear sense of our relationship with you who you designed us to be, who, what you designed us to do, where you designed us to go in terms of our relationship with you, that we would be disciples who make disciples wherever we are. And God, my desire is that, that as we hit those last three weeks, that our lives would explode with excitement and a purpose as we recognize what you have done in us, how you've designed us, the purpose that you've given us, who you've made us uniquely to be, what you've designed us to do, God, the place that you have for us to go as we, as we live out this life, the context there. God, help us. Help us to hear from you. Open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.